I'm Henry Michael. Uh, I work with our students and our families, and so I'm thankful uh, to be here with you, and I'm glad you guys are here with us today. Um, one of the uh, interesting things about human nature is that many of us, uh, no matter how many people are in a situation, if you experience one thing, you can have that many different interpretations of that, that one event. Um, if somebody gives something really big and extravagant, some people might think, oh, they are so you know, good-hearted and sacrificial. And there's a whole other group that might be thinking at the exact same time that they're being selfish, they're just trying to get praise. This warm, this warm winter, all of us are experiencing, of course, I wrote this when it wasn't freezing out, but um, this warm winter, some of you guys are super excited about it. You love that it hasn't been crazy snow all winter. Some of you are really angry because you got skis or a snowmobile for Christmas, or if, you, uh, if you're planning a wedding, an outdoor wedding, you love, you love that there's no rain, but if you're a farmer you'll be more likely to love rain, right? Some of you get all, actually, there's probably going to be a, du- a bunch of you who hear my sermon uh, in a lot of different ways. Now, my mom uh, tried to teach me how to be polite at the dinner table growing up. The problem was, though, is that she was married to my dad, who had a much more fun way of eating in a way that I kind of took on to myself. Uh, and if you've, if you've eaten with him, uh, before you know what I'm talking about. If you're cooking and he's walking, he's stalking the, the kitchen, he's picking out of all the food, the salads, the whatever, he's taking little corners of bread, whatever it is, he picks at the food before it's time to eat. At the end of dinner, he uses his finger to get all the little extra crunchy pieces out of the bottom of the pan. Um, he will r- routinely steal plate, uh, food off your plates um, while you're eating, and then even growing up, we would have uh, salad every single night in a bowl, and we'd make a homemade dressing, and there would be extra salad dressing at the, at the bottom with cheese, and we would fight every night at who got it. And we'd come up with different competitions, but they got too cutthroat, and so we just had to go with a rotation and just hoping it was our night to get the bowl so we could drink the juice and eat the cheese at the end. It was a big deal in our family. My mom never participated. Uh, she, she hated it. She still hates it because we all do it. I do it. My dad does it. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter does it. And my niece does it and drives her crazy. And she would warn me uh, that if you do this in front of, like maybe on a date or maybe in front of a potential spouse, you'll never get married. Well, first dinner, fast forward a little bit to the first dinner with Holly and her family. I was meeting uh, her family. I met her family, but this is like the big deal first dinner with maybe the potential fiance type of dinner. And I came in with the best intentions, I promise, to leave a good impression. The only problem is, is that they made flank steak and homemade chimichurri sauce with it. And I love both of those things. And they made this big salad and it was homemade dressing. It was everything that I love. I don't remember if there were sides. I just remember those two things and I blacked out in joy. Um, and my instincts took over, and I can only tell the rest of the story because I was told later what happened, okay? So I got a big plate. Obviously, it was just like a mountain of steak, mountain of salad, and um, I was eating it, and I finished that plate, and I started reaching over the kitchen counter and grabbing steak with my bare hands and dipping it in the juice and eating it. Apparently, I asked for the bowl so I could drink all the salad juice, (laughs) 
And I think there might even be a picture somewhere. We found a later picture of me doing this. This became a regular routine. Um, I was told later that my mother-in-law and Holly looked at each other and they said, he might be the one. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. Like, that is not a lie. That is really what happened. Uh, So, same event, different interpretation, okay? So my mom, she is right 99.9% of the time for future in-laws and future spouses, but she wasn't right with this family because most of the time when we, when we experience something, we are bringing in our history, our past experience, and each response that we have tells a story. In our passage today, Jesus heals someone miraculously. And we have two group responses, and through these responses, we see uh, Jesus is able to use those responses to teach us how we can grow to know him deeper. And so if you have your Bibles with you, um, open your Bibles up to Matthew 12, 22. I was going to check which page we were supposed to be on, but I totally forgot to do that, so I am sorry. But Matthew is the first uh, book of the New Testament, Matthew 12, verse 22. We are in a mini-series on uh, Matthew 11 and 12. Uh, And it's part of a broader series. We're trying to work through Matthew, and it's taken us a long time, which is really good because Matthew is beautiful and it's rich. And so we open up our Bibles every single week because we don't want God's word to be a mystery. Uh, And then we also don't want God's story and our place in that story to be a mystery either. And so before we get into our scripture today, uh, we're going to pray a prayer together on this screen, and then we're going to watch some Five Oakers as they read our passage. Father, we thank you that millions of people learn from the Bible this weekend. Please speak powerfully through your spirit to convict, to comfort, and to conform our minds to yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 12 verses 22 to 37. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. 
All right. So as I I said, we are going to, we're going to work through this passage a little bit slowly, but we're going to use these two responses from the healing of the demon possessed man to show us three ways to know God deeper. But before we get into our passage, if you're new with us or if you've missed a couple weeks, just want to give you a little bit of uh, some where we are in the story. Um, Jesus, uh, at this time in his ministry, is starting to get popular, but he's also getting controversial. Uh, we see uh, in chapter 11, John the Baptist is starting to doubt uh, if Jesus is who he says he was, if he's actually the Messiah, because he's not doing what he thought he was going to do. He was waiting for him to you know, take over the Romans. Um, he's calling down judgment on people who don't believe in him. He's making huge statements on who belongs to God, who doesn't belong to God. He's teaching with authority, but he's also making religious leaders angry. Uh, on one Sabbath that we studied recently, uh, that was our last little mini-series within a mini-series, um, Jesus with his disciples, they're eating grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus is healing, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees who saw that, uh, were upset and they were planning to kill him. And so he kind of ran off, uh, but a crowd followed him. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in this passage. So after he gets away from these religious leaders who are trying to kill him, we get our first way of knowing God in a deeper way, and that is through his work. And it says in uh, verse 22, um, it says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. So that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Last uh, weekend, Holly left with our youngest daughter and I was left with the oldest three. And I realized how hard it is to do that. And I know many people uh, within this congregation throughout the world are single parents and God bless you for that. That is very difficult um, but I had to do it for a weekend, which wasn't horrible. And, uh, but I also had to work. I had to help write the sermon. So um, I had to both be a, you know, an employee, a pastor at this church, but I also couldn't just put my kids in front of a screen for you know, three straight days. Um, I had to be a good dad. So I had to be intentional, but I also had to, to work and get some stuff done. And so I had to make a pretty dynamic checklist. I had to make a checklist so that not only could I get my work done, I could hang out with the kids, but I also could prepare our house for when Holly gets back so she's not walking into absolute chaos. Uh, Jesus uh, had a similar type of thing going on. He was two things at once. He was both God and man. He was both the perfect man and God. But he was intentional with every aspect of his life. He didn't need a checklist to do what he was doing. He, what, he didn't need like a Messiah checklist that told him, okay, heal someone over here, you know, fulfill a prophecy over there, uh, say something controversial and so on until his death and his resurrection. To think he had a checklist would obviously be a mistake and would do a disservice in our understanding of who Jesus is and the work that he did in our lives. What Jesus was doing and how he lived and how he worked was in a way that was an example to us. Jesus lived the way we should live. Jesus had a living and active relationship with God. He was aware of the movements of the Spirit in everyday life. Jesus didn't have a checklist because checklists are task-oriented. 
They're good to do sometimes, but it's not a great way to live every aspect of your life. Jesus was people-oriented. Checklists can blind us to the spontaneity of the spirit, to the needs that don't directly affect us. But in this miracle, we don't see a checklist. We don't see uh, powerful words or speeches. We only see powerful actions. Jesus worked with the people he was with in the daily ordinariness of his life. He used what was in front of him to display God's glory. And that could only happen because he was sensitive to the spirit. And so this is where we get one of the first responses uh, or the first response from his miracle. And they ask this question, could this be the son of David? In other words, they saw an undeniable good work, an undeniable act of mercy. And they could only respond by saying, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? The people recognize who he is through his work, but that's not the only response. Look at verse 24 for the other response to his healing. It says in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, this isn't a good look for the Pharisees. And we can't emphasize this enough. We've said this multiple times, and this is very true for this passage as well. Pharisees are not naturally the bad guys in every situation throughout ancient Israel, okay? Um, The Pharisees... Uh, were just like any other people. Some were bad, some were not. They were religious leaders who were trying to get it right. But even though that group of Pharisees saw the same miracle as the people, they respond in a particular way that tells a story about the Pharisees here in this story. And instead of anticipation and joy, they, jealous, they look at Jesus with jealousy and distrust It seemed like they did have a checklist of who their Messiah should be, what he would look like, and what he would would do. It's a self-centered checklist uh, that they could control, meaning they wanted a small Messiah, a small God, small works from God because it could only fit their imaginations. Jesus was not what they were expecting because Jesus is not small and the works of Jesus are not small. Look how Jesus responds to them in verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every king, kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So I, I tend to believe that the Pharisees had an emotional response to what Jesus did, filled with jealousy and, and mistrust and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus meets them where they're at 
um, and explains his work with logic and truth. And Jesus actually is giving us an inside look into the spiritual realm. And sometimes when we read verses like this, uh, we can learn a lot about uh, about the Bible, characters in the Bible, just by the way that Jesus talks. And what we learn here is that Satan is real. And for some of you guys, it's like, yeah, obviously. But that's not a given in our culture right now. Jesus didn't go and look at the Pharisees and say, you guys are so dumb. I cannot believe you guys actually believe that. No, he said, no, Satan is real and, and, uh, and I'm going to address him as if he is real. The second thing that we see is that Satan has a kingdom, meaning that there's a hierarchy, that there are laws and there are rules in place. It's not as Satan is, it has, is like pulling a little sleight of hand trick and him and Jesus are like, okay, I'm going to possess this guy and you just go over there and I'll just leave, you know. That doesn't work. Satan can't work against Satan and be affected. They are enemies. In fact, some of their Pharisee friends are doing similar things to what Jesus is doing by casting out demons. So are they a part of kingdom, Satan's kingdom too? And so he says, they will be your judges if that is true. They're also working for the prince of demons. Thirdly, if the Satan is real, his kingdom, that he has a kingdom, three, his kingdom has influence. Now, his kingdom does have some influence now, but especially before the cross, before Jesus died for sins and, and took those spiritual uh, elements and threw them down into, uh, destroyed them with the cross. But we see a physical manifestation of possession, leaving a guy deaf and mute in this situation. Um, many people throughout history and time have mistakenly read this and said, okay, any such malady is demon possession or at least demon um, influenced. Uh, and, and that's a pretty bad way to read our Bibles. We even see in chapter 9, we have a couple blind men who come after Jesus and are saying like, hey, son of David, please heal us. And Jesus has nothing about demonic influence, but he heals them anyways. There's a lot of healings that happen that are demonic influence, and then there are some that are not. It's just part of living in a sinful world. We see that Jesus takes Satan's kingdom and its effects seriously. He takes them head on and Satan's kingdom doesn't have a chance. Because Jesus says in his own words here, if this is real, if I really did this, then the kingdom of God is near. So Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom on enemy territory. And this is really good news. In fact, we pray this in our church regularly. We pray that his kingdom comes and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying that his kingdom comes fully here on earth. It started with Jesus. Satan is this supernatural strong man. He's had his time of chaos. But Jesus is going into that strong man's house, tying, up, tying him up and plundering it at will. That is good news. Jesus is not just a guy with cool words, cool tricks. He is ushering in the kingdom of God. Satan's kingdom is on the clock. He's dying. It has an end. Now when we, we hear stuff like this and we see the Pharisee sees in their reaction to Jesus and his miracles, a lot of people will 
think, man, the Pharisees are so dumb. How could they think that? They're so wrong-headed. I, I would never have done that. And maybe that's true for, for some of us. But like the Pharisees, have we blinded ourselves from the work of God with our own control, our own checklists, our own expectations of how Jesus can or should work in our lives and around us? We like the good things about Jesus. We like that he had miracles. We liked his life, death, and resurrection. We like his good teachings and his example. We tend to conveniently forget sometimes some of the hard teachings that he teaches. That our sin is part of the reason that he had to die. Our sin. All of our sin. And that he doesn't ask us for parts. He asks us for all of us. So we pick and choose which parts of Jesus will fit our lifestyles and our sensibilities, what we're going to listen to and what's for other people, often explaining explaining away the works of God as our works or coincidences. It's another way of putting Jesus in a box. Or does his work in and around you lead you to relationship and worship? To a deeper knowledge of God. If you want to know God, and I'm guessing if you're here, um, there's at least part of you that wants to know God in a deeper way. You need to recognize and experience Jesus through his work in and around you. The easy things, the fun things, as well as the hard things, and the ones that are hard to stomach. Knowing God requires us to recognize and experience his work, which isn't always obvious. Which leads us to our second way that we can know God deeper. It's one of his greatest works and that is through his forgiveness. Verse 30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, the beginning of these verses makes some sense to me, and I think it makes sense to a lot of us, especially if we've grown up in the church. There is a clear choice. You either choose God or you don't. You either choose Jesus or or you don't. And maybe you've been there uh, in an emotionally charged worship service or uh, maybe a charged up feeling from a mission trip or a call to action from a dynamic speaker or that mountaintop experience from a retreat or a camp where we boldly say, I choose Jesus. But as time goes on, we all realize that those emotions fade. That high fades. That mountaintop seems to be going down a little bit. We grow numb. Doubts creep in. We're filled with guilt and shame as we kind of go back slowly to old patterns. But Jesus here, he gives us hope. Jesus is essentially saying that every sin and every slander can be forgiven. In fact, he says, you can even talk trash about me. That will still be forgiven. But the second half of verse 31 and verse 32 
are a little bit less clear. He says, only one thing won't be forgiven, and that's blasphemy against the Spirit, speaking against the Holy Spirit. And so we need to address the elephant in that statement that there is an unforgivable sin, and maybe you've heard this. It can be easily misapplied, too. Anyone who remotely cares about Jesus doesn't want to commit that sin, even accidentally. So how do we avoid this sin, and what does it mean? Well, if we look contextually, like why is he saying it? He's saying it to the Pharisees and he's saying it to the people in earshot. So we've got to take that into account. The unforgivable sin is attributing the work of God to Satan. It's what the Pharisees are in, gravely, in grave danger of doing here. It's to downplay, it's to overlook, it's to respond with contempt to the work of the Holy Spirit. Their words aren't nearly as sinful as their hearts. It's being in a place of no return where your heart is so hard, you're so turned away from God that you could actually look at the work of God, an obvious good work of mercy from Jesus and call it work of the devil. Completely reject it. Isaiah 5.20 talks about this kind of heart When he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He's telling the Pharisees, listen, you can reject me because you may come around to it later when I do this resurrection thing. But if you attribute the work of God to the devil, you might be too far gone. There's no coming back from that. So when we hear that there's an unforgivable sin, this verse and this warning is not for the sensitive of conscience. Most, if not every person who is pursuing God in good faith is not in danger of this sin. And there's precedence all throughout scripture. Peter, uh, when Jesus says, listen, my mission here is to die, Peter goes, there's no way that's going to happen. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan calls Peter Satan. That's terrible from Jesus, but he's forgiven. When Jesus was arrested and and being questioned and people were asking, hey, wait, aren't you one of his followers? He denied him three times, but guess what? Jesus forgave him three times. We get most of our New Testament from Paul. Paul used to be called Saul. Saul used to hunt Christians, kill Christians, but he was knocked off his horse, blinded, and became one of the greatest missionaries of all time. His sins were forgiven. John the Baptist, even, he's doubting Jesus, whether he's the Messiah, and he's called the greatest of all prophets. His family, they're doubting who he is, yet James and his brothers, some of his brothers wrote books of the Bible. They also were forgiven. The list goes on. It's all throughout Scripture. Don't let God's grace and forgiveness, don't forget God's grace and forgiveness and don't fear a sin that followers of Jesus won't commit. Because of the unforgivable sin, we oftentimes miss the beauty of the rest of these verses that every sin can be forgiven. Do you live in guilt and shame because of some of the sinful habits you've, you've started doing in your life? your sin can be forgiven? Do you think you've messed up too many times, that you've disappointed God yet again, your sin 
can be forgiven. You may say, you don't know my past. You don't know what I think, what I said, what I'm thinking about right now as you're talking to me. Your sin can be forgiven. His forgiveness is so huge, total, extravagant, all-encompassing. I could keep listing my sins, your sins, the sins of the people you want to hear the sermon's sins. They all can be forgiven. Because if you are with him and you gather with him, your sins have been taken to the cross. Your sins, if you are in Christ, are dead. Grand statements and big promises or even life-altering changes are good and sometimes necessary for some of us to really uh, know God deeper. But what Jesus really wants and requires is you and your faith and your heart. Within the beauty of the statement, your sins can be forgiven, can is the most important part. Can means Jesus has done all the work. And it's the greatest work of all. He is waiting for you and your response and your faith. When you live in the reality of forgiveness, you are brought near to God and you have a chance to know God deeply. And so if we can know him through his works and if we can know him through his forgiveness, I think the natural next question is how do we live uh, with that reality? How do we live? In our life. And that's what our last uh, thing is in our passage. But it's not a cut and dry answer of how do we live. It's not a life hack and it's not three easy steps to know Jesus better today. Um, to To truly know and grow in your knowledge of God, it completely depends on our hearts. And that's our final point. And it says through our hearts, I changed it so it sort of makes sense, but it you can just just think hearts, okay? So jump into uh, verse 33. Jesus says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the good evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I think one of the reasons why parenting is so difficult, and if you're not a parent, if you're in any sort of discipleship ministry, or if you're, I mean, my whole job is this, um, if it's so hard because we don't really know what our kid or the person that you're, you're ministering to is actually hearing, learning, or implementing in their lives and from your example. There's really no finished product when it comes to parenting and discipling. So last year, um, Hank, we got Hank into wrestling because I wrestled, so I thought, you know, let's just, let's give it a try. And um, all signs point to him absolutely hating it. He refused to do things that he was bad at. And so, like, he did a somersault, and, like, some kid kicked him. He's like, I'm done with that. We're done. You know, like, there's some different movements that he would go, he would just be like, I'm not doing that. He would, like, run to me and wait till it was over, and then he'd go back in. And I was just like, what are you doing? And this would happen, and over, over time, he would do a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. 
uh, one day, we, during rest time, we heard something up in his room. We went up to his room, and he's practicing in his room, like, some of the movements that he was embarrassed to do in front of other people until, like, he had enough mastery over it that he didn't look dumb in front of other people. Now, I judged him, and I judged his heart as stubborn, which is sort of true. Um, he definitely is stubborn. But there is a whole lot more going on inside of him than just refusing to do something. This is like most uh, encounters that we uh, encounter daily with people that are around us. Although we might not have it written down and we don't probably say it out loud, we kind of have an idea or many of us have an idea in our heads of what a good Christian should look like. And then we can sit outside and judge them based on our own criteria of what we think, even what we think the Bible says is what a good Christian looks like. And we look at the words that they use, their actions, how much they give, how much they serve, how well they pray, the words they use, how much Bible they know. We could just keep listing things over and over again. And again, there's some things that I think there are people should do and there are things people should not do. But what we do or don't do is not an end in and of itself. What these checklists in our minds say is that we love the work of God and that we love his forgiveness, but then we want to take it from there. But if you think of yourself, like think of you as an individual, no one really knows what's going on inside of you, what's convicting you, what, how the Lord is moving in you. Sometimes you don't even know what's happening inside of you and how the Lord is moving in you how people are praying for you and how that's actually affecting you. Jesus says, the person who is right with God will bear good fruit. It is the inside that counts. Their words are an indication of where they are and where their heart is, but that is for God to deal with. And in the context of our passage, he's talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are hiding their hard hearts with words and actions. And eventually they're exposed as vipers. But within this warning is grace for them and for us. It's a grace to respond to Jesus, his works, and his forgiveness. When we prescribe righteousness, when we judge other people's journeys and make judgments upon outside things or what we think a good Christian should look like and write people off, what we are participating in is moralism. Eugene Peterson defines moralism this way. He says, moralism works from the outside. It imposes right behavior on oneself or others. There is no freedom in it and no joy. Moralism is a moral grid that is set on life. Up against this grid, I can see exactly where I fit or don't fit, where you fit or don't fit, and what actions are right and which are wrong. And once I know that, what else is there? I either do it or don't, and you either do it or don't. Simple. There's a place to be concerned with your brother or your sister or your in Christ or your spouse or your children. We don't sit back and just say, whatever, you know, I can't judge. You know, we don't live like that. There's times to confront sin and to speak grace to your family, your friends and all that, but it can only happen in relationship and it can only happen in love, not the joyless burden of moralism, which makes it hard because it takes patience and it takes faith, but it starts with you. 
instead of looking to others and fitting them in a box, I want to ask you, how are you growing inside to produce good fruit? Spoil alert, it's different for everyone. Peterson uh, goes on to tell this story that the danger of moralism poses on us and the people around us. And he talks about this wonderful Greek myth that tells this story of moralism. He says, Procrustus, who's the guy who owned this this house alongside a well-traveled road in Greece, a strategically placed bed and breakfast, somewhat stout, he seemed an affable man with gracious manner. He liked things clean and tidy. And he wanted his guests to leave his hospitable place better than when they arrived, looking like a perfectly proportioned Greek statue. Most days he could be sitting comfortably in his rocking chair on the porch of his house, smoking his pipe, welcoming travelers and offering them hospitality. Smoke from his pipe conveyed a homey fragrance and the beard was a reassuring grandfatherly white. The house was neat and well-kept. It looked like a safe haven for tired travelers and most most evenings there was a guest or two and after welcoming them and providing them dinner Procrustus showed his guests their rooms. Procrustus had this bed in his house that he described as having a unique property that it would exactly fit the frame of whoever slept in it but what Procrustus didn't say was how this was the case. After his guests were fast asleep Procrustus would enter their rooms and complete his hospitality. A short person would be stretched on a rack until he or she filled the bed. Or for a tall person, whatever hung over, either arms or legs, would be cut off to fit the bed. Everyone was made over to fit the dimensions of the bed, either by stretching or by amputation. When his guests left the next morning, whether aching or hobbling, they measured to the dimensions of a perfect Greek. That's moralism in a nutshell. Moralism stretches or amputates people into the perfect Christian. There's no individuality. Everyone looks the same. It's a joyless box that you put yourself into and you put other people into, whether they fit or not. That's why Jesus focuses on the heart. A healthy heart that produces good fruit. But a healthy heart that produces good fruit doesn't happen by accident. It happens when we align our lives with Jesus, living it as he did, doing things called spiritual disciplines. Things like Bible reading, prayer, confession, time alone with God, community, memorization, fasting, simplicity, Sabbath. The list is actually a lot longer than that. And on the, that can actually overwhelm you. It overwhelms me when I hear lists like that. But when we feel that overwhelming feeling, when we hear things that actually draw us closer to Jesus, that's moralism knocking at the door. It's comparison. It's achievement. All words for joyless outward actions. So take away comparison and achievement and we start by adding things in our lives that produce hearts that produce good fruit. And so I want to make a challenge to you all. Um, In community, with people that know you, identify a bad fruit in your life and match it with a discipline for a deeper knowledge of God. You don't have to do all the disciplines at once. You don't have to do them. You can go in seasons and do some things here and some things there. 
But either way, it's living like Jesus lives through the disciplines. There's disciplines of simplification and rest. If you feel anxious, materialistic, burned out, you might need a a discipline that simplifies your life, that slows you down so that you can hear God and putting technology and possessions in their place. Things like simplicity, Sabbath, or rest. There's disciplines of God's word. If you feel like you have an inconsistent life, if you have inconsistent thoughts and actions, put God's word in your mind and your heart. Change your words and change your prayers through Bible reading, contemplation, memorization, time alone with God. And finally, there's disciplines of deep change. If you're addicted, if you're full of guilt and shame, find structure, seek people in your life for confession, community, and even fasting. In your resources, I put two books that are great ways to start because I probably said some words in there and some things that maybe you've never even heard of, and that's okay. We don't have all the time in the world. I'm already one minute over. But pick up those books. They're not hard reads, and they're great first steps into uh, making your life look more like Jesus. Some of these are going to feel really uncomfortable. Some of these might feel a little bit more natural for you. The reward is not a box checked, and the reward is not a pat on the back. It is a deeper life with Jesus. I want to encourage you, take a step towards that.